Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the mid-alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entale app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. How is everyone? Annabelle, how are you? I am. I am absolutely fine. But um, as you know, I am rattling with supplements at the moment. (laughs) Um, I take maybe 25 every morning at vast, vast expense. And I do feel better. And I'm sure probably two of them work. But I don't know which fucking two work. (laughs) So I take them all. Sometimes I take them with soup when things are bad. Sometimes I take them with wine. Sometimes I take them with vodka. Anyway, I've just taken them. And they're sitting behind my sternum. Oh. They they haven't moved anywhere. They're just wedged. So um, apart from that, uh, everything's marvellous. How are you, Em? Well, funny you should ask, but uh, I'm absolutely fine. But if one more person asks me a question or to do something, I don't think I'm going to be responsible for my for my actions. I feel like one more question will send me Michael Douglas falling down. Um, anyway, I feel like a hypocrite because I am now going to ask you guys a question, which is, are you a bit miserable or a lot miserable? Do you feel ashamed of yourself as though you're failing, as though you've missed the life you could have had? We do, and we reckon you probably do too, because most grown-up women are finding themselves living in a total shit show. But, as we always say, if we're not in it together, we're not in it at all. So it's very exciting that just before we fully surrender to our nervous breakdowns, we have a real authority on the line. Ada Calhoun is an author and journalist in that enviably smart New Yorky vein, and this year she wrote the definitive analysis about about why Generation X women feel so close to the abyss. In Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis, she looked at housing costs, employment trends, debt, divorce, perimenopause, and at every turn she saw a pattern. Gen X women were in crisis. Obviously, this is a subject close to our hearts and we are weepingly grateful to find another ally saying, no, look, really, it just it isn't just you. Thank you, Ada Calhoun, and welcome to the podcast. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm absolutely fine. Um, but I did wake up at 4.13 this morning and didn't fall back asleep for two hours. Oh. I'm amazed you fell back asleep at all. Not for long. But... <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, I think you should consider yourself extremely lucky. I am. I am so lucky. No right to complain. Very lucky. Yeah. Oh my God, that 4.13 thing. Mine, mine is usually 4.20. Oh. Um, and, and, and you wake up and, 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 you know, and you're suddenly the most alert person in the world. Oh yeah. Whether or not you're feeling anxious, you're just whether it's hormones, anxiety, depression... Whatever it is, mm-hmm. you, I mean, there's no sense of sleepiness at all around that time, is there? It's bizarre. No, wide awake. I was, you know, I was contemplating going and doing touch-ups. I had to paint something yesterday. And I was like, I could just go, you know, with the flashlight and go and touch it all up. But I did not. I stayed in bed. Yes, you said I was contemplating. I was thinking, contemplating suicide. <laughs> that too, you know. There's like a loop. There's a, you know, touch-up painting suicide, <laughs> end of the world. It all kind of goes in a loop. It pretty much does, isn't it? Our, I mean, our thoughts and anxieties have a lot of texture and a lot of colour as, we, as we run the gamut. What was really very interesting about your book about Gen X women was that we all know that, that, that we're panicking and we're worried and we feel like we're failing and we feel a lot of shame. We'll talk about that later. But what you did so coherently and fluently was to contextualise that. Mm-hmm. within the sort of time that we were born and the opportunities that were supposedly given to us but sort of simultaneously taken away. Can you talk to us a little bit about about that nest into which we, you know, emerged? 
Yeah, so um, so for the book, I interviewed a couple hundred women, and what a lot of them said was that they thought they would be further along by now. They thought they would have a family, but they didn't. They thought they would have a high-flying career, and they didn't. They If they did have both things, they thought it would feel different. They thought they would be relaxed and not um, miserable and exhausted. And what I kept hearing over and over was this separation between what they thought was going to happen what we thought was going to happen, I should say, and then what actually did happen. Um, And what I also heard was a lot of the women were blaming themselves for their failures. So if if they weren't able to have all the things they thought, um, then it was because they didn't work hard enough or because they didn't, they weren't on the right diet or because they weren't putting themselves out enough in the dating world or they're, you know, they, they had this mantra that they were telling themselves about how they had failed. And the book is an argument for looking at a wider context and saying, maybe it wasn't you that screwed something up. Maybe we were sold a bill of goods and told we could do things um, without given, being given any resources for actually achieving them. Yes, so, so this idea of being able to have it all very quickly flipped into the, into the pressure of, of needing to do it all, feel it all, and, and sort of make it all happen. I remember thinking that I, I was having it all as a young, as a teenager, even in the 90s, even as some strange man stuck his hand up my skirt. I mean, you know, this having it all thing was a really, it was a big pressure for us. It was like, okay, if you're going to have it all, you're going to have to do it all. I thought that perfume yes. advert that you talk about at the beginning saying that the, 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 the perfume will take you to be the 24 hour woman and the idea that you have to be basically be on for 24 hours um and be sexy and funny and successful and caring and you know and wink um the sort of jerry hall and i'm going to get this wrong (laughs) so i'm going to say it all the wrong but the sort of jerry hall i'm going to be a whore in the bedroom and a and a gastronome in the kitchen and or the melanie griffith which I, you know, you, you reference a lot, which is, you know, I've got a head for business and a bod for sin. And we're all like, yes, yes, we've got that. We've got that. And then actually now we're like, no, I have a bod for like lying down and eating lasagna and a head that can't remember where I put my keys. And a head yes, for putting exactly. the keys in the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's so depressing. That's very funny. Yes, that Anjali perfume commercial. It was funny how many women sang that whole thing to me when I when I mentioned the pressures of having it all. Um, so you know, it begins. You can I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan and never let you forget you're a man. Um, and I think it was it really crystallized the message we got, which was that we were supposed to, as you said, like be perfect in the bedroom, be perfect in the kitchen, be perfect in the workplace, and somehow do it all at the same time um, without missing a beat and without anyone else actually um, doing anything to make that feasible. So, you know, the, in yes, the same numbers... Also, yeah. with, also without being a vibe killer or oh, yeah, ever no. saying, yeah. Exactly, while, while being very cheerful about it. <laughs> um, and yeah, but like, you know, women marched into the workplace and men did not return to the home in equal numbers. There, there, was no, there was no compensation for that work that women started to do. And so women just had to add things without anything being taken off their plate. Um, Someone did the maths during lockdown about um, the hours that women were needing to work when they were having to work full-time jobs, homeschool, do the housework, and so, and it added up to twenty six hours a day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, it, it just wasn't. It just wasn't possible. And we wonder why we feel bad. And the the trouble is, is that is is not only do we feel terrible, 
We feel terrible about feeling terrible. We feel ashamed that we're failing to the point where not only have, have we not achieved what we were set up to think we could achieve, mm-hmm. but that, that we're not even happy with our lot. So that leads, I think, to this isolation that, um, that you are countering in your book, aren't you, really? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the main goal for the book, was just to take away, take away that shame and that sense of being alone in all this. Um, so many of the women I talked to said the same things, um, but, but really seemed convinced that, that they were the only people who were going through it. And, um, and that's something that since the book came out, I've been hearing over and over again is just this sense of relief that, that it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of a depressing relief. It's like, like, oh no, we're all screwed. But it's like, hey, we're all screwed. <laughs> There's something a little comforting yeah. in that. Well, I think also it's comforting because you sort of legitimized the anxiety and the panic and the fear because you said okay there are actual factors like economic realities that are different from other generations there are um you know even just the basic fact that we are doing more childcare now than mothers did in 1965 is enough to make you think yeah. oh my god you know of course stay yes. at home mothers working women are doing more childcare than stay at home mothers did that's right that's the bit that's the bit another bit of maths that somehow doesn't seem possible Yes. No, exactly. It's like, and so I think like there are all of these different trends, um, wages, wages falling, job stability falling, um, you know, hitting one recession after the other as you try to climb the corporate ladder, then getting rid of middle management right when you get to middle management, um, you know, having less children, but focusing on them a lot more. So you have to, uh, you know, be much more engaged as a parent than your parents were while you're also supposed to be acing it and pretending you don't have children in the workplace. And it's just these one thing after the other that I was seeing in the, in the statistics and the, and the cultural trends was like, everything is making women more tired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really the thing. I mean, we can talk, we'll talk about the money panic and the sort of body panic and the hormone panic in a minute, mm-hmm. but the, the sheer exhaustion, that thing of waking up and, and, and longing to go back to bed all day, that thing. I sometimes am so tired that I, I, I actually bounce off walls. I can't walk <laughs> in a straight line like I'm drunk and unfortunately I'm not. Um, and, it's, and it's the exhaustion. And so there also we have, you know, the waking up at 4.13, mm-hmm. but also the fact that perimenopause can make you incredibly tired yes. and because of the, the denial that you talk about in your book what we don't realize is we're it we're we're in it we're, we're in for about nine years seven to nine years aren't we of perimenopause um and so that's going to start at sort of 43 or 44 mm-hmm. but we don't want to admit that that's happening so we're trying to ride these feelings these this kind of this kind of derangement that mm-hmm. enters our lives in our early 40s i think yeah, no, and, and I, that was the, the chapter that made me the most, the angriest and the most frustrated to write because I have gone to my annual exam every year. Like I've gone to checkups, I read magazines, I read books. And the idea that I had never even heard the term perimenopause and still, until I started working on this project. And, um, and I'd been in it for three years probably. And, and then here I was like just learning about it. Why did no one tell me? Um, I, I found myself quite, quite angry. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's, the thing is, it's about 80% of women have major symptoms, maybe 20% are just fine, and they coast through, but then 80% are having these symptoms, and often thinking they are something else. So the the mood swings, the waking up at night, weight gain, all of these things um, come from these fluctuating hormones. And, and you can get them under control. And you, you know, there are things you can do. But if you don't know, that's what it is, then you're just left to think you're going yeah. crazy. And, and certainly our mothers never, never talk to us about it because you know the just the word menopause men o 
menopause. You know, we are educated to believe it's going to make us, you know, unfuckable, yeah. crumbling skeletons, you know. <laughs> Very dusty. We, we, <laughs> yeah, dusty and oh. spidery with no relevance. Yeah. And, and the shame around that, mm-hmm. around no one knowing that it had happened. Um, and so, it's, it, so even now, as you say, it's quite hard and often expensive to try and find nuanced help. I think, I think there was a statistic in your book, and I may get this wrong, that only 20% of gynecologists in America had been trained in hormones and, and, yes. and menopausal care. Yeah. So 80%, they, they could tell you if you were pregnant, but they basically couldn't tell you anything else. Yes. So, and, and, and I think, you know, in England, if you go to a GP, you're highly unlikely to get anything other than, than an SSRI. Yeah. That's very common here too. Um, and yeah, I think it was one in, the last study was one in four women of this age are on antidepressants and you wonder why. Um, and, and I think it is because if you don't, if, you, if you're not thinking about hormone therapy, you're not thinking about diet and exercise changes that work on this, um, then you're just like, okay, well, she's depressed. Here's, um, here's uh, you know, an SSRI. And then that of course, often in women leads to, to more weight gain and it can have, you know, can mess with sleep it can mess with libido and all this other stuff um and it doesn't it it works for some women but not for everybody and then she's left you know in a worse in a worse state than before I mean, one of the reasons I'm rattling with supplements is because the last SSRI I was on, I put on eight kilograms in eight months mm-hmm. um, and on an already curvy frame. And so I went another way, which is working. As I say, I don't know which two of the pills <laughs> are working. But I'm going to keep taking them all. But, but something is doing something. Yeah. But only because I had the resources and the, and the sort of and, and the determination to really and the confidence, actually, mm-hmm. because of the world that I work in to go out and look for it. Um, I think most women are just abandoned to their hormonal and fate. Yes. Yeah, and I think as well, because, we're, because we feel like 40 now or 42 now isn't the same as 40 then in our mother's generation, we feel like we're younger and we feel like, so therefore this shouldn't be happening to us now. We're in absolute kind of denial about it and that only adds to it. And so, yeah, so we feel even more divorced from this, from this sense of what's happening with our bodies. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's incredibly depressing. And I, I think the other thing is, is that the symptoms are so... They, they kind of, it's so, it's such a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because the symptoms are so, make us so like un, unpleasant to be around, you know, rage and lack of sleep and, you know, exactly, uh, you know, lack of confidence, body changes. But also huge lack of compassion, because if you are being this cruel to yourself, mm-hmm. then you're being really cruel to everybody around you. So you become the sort of angry asshole middle-aged woman that you yeah. know that you desperate it's exactly what you desperately don't want to be so you're in this awful cycle of misery um ada can i ask you to just give us a little bit of the really compelling sort of socio-economic context mm-hmm. about the the era in which we grew up and what we were born into and educated through that's contributed to certainly some of the financial panic that we all feel yeah so i think one of the biggest factors that we don't take seriously is that 40 percent of us were children of divorce um, and this was not the same divorce that we have now with the co-parenting and the mediation and all that. It was usually acrimonious. Um, women usually kept the children and men went off uh, and they usually had more children with other people. And so you had these single mothers raising children with far less money and, and far fewer resources and, and a lot more time alone. That was, I mean, that's the kind of pattern for, for nearly half our generation. And even the ones who did have two parents often had a lot of time alone um, because our mothers started going out and working and all this. And so it was this latchkey situation. And 
so what happened was a lot of kids grew up kind of broke and um and also alone all the time a lot of things abandoned really I mean and if you say to a a nine-year-old child go off on your bike and don't come back um until it's dark yeah then you know that you're opening up all sorts of perils I mean can you imagine doing that now no one would do that now everybody you'd be arrested I mean it was like (laughs) this was just the mores were completely different and so and then the flip side is that girls especially were being told you can be anything, even president. You can have it all. You can do it all. You should, you know, and, and I had a lot of women tell me that, that they would say something like, I want to be a nurse. And their mother would say, no, 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 you don't want to be a nurse. You want to be a doctor. You want to be a surgeon. And there was this pressure to always reach, reach higher, aim bigger, you know, d- try to do more and more and more. But it wasn't like that child was then given medical school tuition or a partner who would stay home while she did her residency or, you know, a full-time babysitter, or the grandmother was going to come live. Like, there, there was no adjustment made to let her dream her big dreams. It was just, you figure it out, good luck. And, and yeah. so girls had to figure it out. It meant a lot of us started working when we were very young and worked very, very, very hard and still couldn't quite make it all happen. And then emerged from a lot of us from university into this, you know, very, very um, peripatetic economic landscape. I mean, you know, if if you're talking about people who came out from the 90s to the noughties, you know, I mean, it was up and down and crashing and booming. And it was all it was all over the place. wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I went back and looked at a lot of the headlines and it was like every one of those years in the 90s I was looking at, they were saying the worst job market ever for graduates. And then the next year, really the worst (laughs) job market ever. No, we're serious this time. This is the worst. And it went on and on. And so, yeah, so we graduated, many of us into a recession. And then a a lot of us went into fields like tech. And then the 2001 bust happened. And then, I mean, sort of, and then one thing after the other. And it was right when we were thinking about buying homes, uh, or did buy a home, housing crisis hit, that hit Gen X worse than other generations by a lot. Um, and, and just kind of at one, every, every turn, one, one moment after another that we could have kind of climbed out of this financially, something else, some other wave happened. And I think what we're going through right now um, is, is maybe the most dramatic example. And this, of course, happened, like I was on my book tour when the pandemic happened, um, mm. And and a lot of people said the book be- started to seem like a prequel to all of this. Like, every everything is about to crash and burn in these women's lives, and we can't take one more one more um, straw. And then here comes this. Mm-mm. And also, all these women who've, as you say, <clears throat> all of us who've worked really, really hard since you know before we left school, and so you're left with this funny, sort of slightly bitter and twisted feeling that you. You tried to do everything right. Yeah. You really tried to. You thought you were doing everything right. You, you know, there's a slight feeling about Gen X that maybe we just all, you know, got stoned and went to sleep when Kurt Cobain died and then woke up, you know, with grey roots and perimenopause, <laughs> you know, because we are this slight, you know, as you say, this invisible generation sandwich between the bigger boomers, mm-hmm. bigger, louder boomers and the bigger, louder millennials. So, um, so I think there's a lot of trauma that's, that's going on with, with our lot. I agree with you. I mean, I, I definitely I heard that from one woman after another that that she was just dealing with this sense that nothing's ever going to be really okay. Like there's no safety. I think part of that might be the divorce thing. Part of it is growing up without a lot of supervision and parenting yourself. Um, and and part of it I think is just this this boom 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 of traumas. Um, but but a lot of these women just say, you know, I would say what what would be enough? What would make you feel safe? And 
the woman I was interviewing would really have to cast around for some idea of, of what that would even look like. Yeah. I've had that conversation with myself about what would make me feel safe and I can't find an answer. And I think that if you're brought up in such a way that you, you or, 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 or left to bring yourself up in such a way that you, are, you lack an ability to self-soothe, mm. yeah. then when you are very anxious or very worried or very sad, you truly believe that you will feel that you will feel this way forever and this is how the world will look to you forever. Mm-hmm. So I think that what, what, what women like us will often find themselves doing is backing themselves into dark, scary corners. Yeah. Yeah. where they can't rescue themselves. It's very hard for other people to reach them. And again, yeah. it's false advertising. Sometimes when you're your most vulnerable, you seem to be your most frightening. Mm-hmm. It's really true. I, I heard that often. And I also heard from a lot of women that, that their partners or their bosses or you know different people were trying, um, but that there was this real frustration about how they were trying, that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't right. Um, you know, the, the, the partner who like came home with dinner, but it was fast food and how dare he and like you know I think they're like once you start controlling everything around you I think it's very hard to let go of those little things even if that would make your life easier so I I think you're right there you can get in this in this cycle where there doesn't seem to be any way out no I think a lot of us really believe that someone's got to run the show yeah 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 yeah. or uh, can't someone help what is it you always say Annabelle can't someone help me no 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 not not like this I'll do it I mean honestly yes exactly I nearly threw a strop and you know I try really hard to be very level-headed but I nearly threw a strop because what was brought back from the shop was brown bread instead of white bread for the cucumber (laughs) sandwiches yesterday and you know I don't want to be that person and I'm all in my head I'm going don't say anything don't say anything don't say anything and then I go was there no white bread (laughs) (laughs) you know and it's so and you feel like and then you just feel like such a dick and 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 also exactly like you said it's like you know you don't want to push people away from doing the the small things um because because you're endlessly critical but at the same time why can't anyone just get white bread anyway (laughs) yes no you're right that is what I always say which is that why do I have to do everything myself no no not like that I'll do it (laughs) exactly Um, because I think that what we're trying to do, actually, within that, I think that we're trying, we think that the white bread will, will stave off Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, all these things are very triggering, aren't they, Ada? It's not just about what they are. They're about this, this fear that we have of, of, of the world collapsing around our ears. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of classic control mechanism to think like the wheels are spinning off, everything's going crazy, we don't have enough money, um, who knows what's going to happen, are the kids safe? And then you try to compensate with like recycling perfectly and, you know, getting the exact right kind of sippy cup for the baby. And, you know, just I, I think it's um, it, and of course, what does it do? It makes you more tired having to research all that and do all that. What was it that um, surprised you most of the things that you heard from all these women? I guess or it maybe were... gave or gave you hope. Oh yeah, those are probably different. But um, <laughs> I I would <laughs> I would say that um, that what surprised actually maybe it's the same because what surprised me was how similar so many women were around the country, and I really worked very hard to go across demographic lines because I think a lot of times it's like, oh, this is a book about middle-aged women, but it's like four women in Los Angeles or something um, who are all white and all, you know, work in tech or something. So um, so I tried to get, like, every state and, and racially diverse, and, um, and you know, I just, I heard... I heard this exhaustion and I heard this sense that we should, we should be doing better and that we're, we're lucky and have no right to complain. That was a phrase that I heard over and over again. And that really surprised me because if you, you know, you just, 
you hear it in Alaska and you hear it in Rhode Island and like where does that come from? Where does the I, But you did, you said in the introduction to your book, didn't you, that the book was was largely about middle class women who'd had certain opportunities because women who were living in in deep poverty had a whole other set of problems. Yes. So I did I did limit the reporting um, by age, obviously, just like you know late thirties to probably late fifties, and then um, by by class. So I thought like rich women have all the reality shows, poor women have all these problems and a thousand more. So I'm going to just limit it in this way. Um, but yeah, what I, what I guess was, was hope inspiring is just this sense that we we're so resilient as a generation. Um, and, and we work so hard and I do think that that stands us in good stead when terrible things happen. I think there is, there's the, a lot of women I've talked to in the last couple of months have said, it's almost as if we were trained for this, for this world yeah. crisis. It's almost like we couldn't have been better prepared by all of the blows and all of the assaults to our st- sense of stability. Um, we were well, ready for it's it. like they say, you know, anxious people never run out of loo paper. But <laughs> also, I think that what's happened during the pandemic and the lockdown and this, this terrible, strange, scary time is people who are very worried or sad or panicky have suddenly realized that the rest of the world is feeling the way that they feel all the time. Yeah. No, it's true. And, and also, I think there is, it's not an I told you so, but I think a lot of Gen X women I've talked to have said, see, like I was right to be up all night every night worried because here it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's the other shoe. <laughs> this is what I was preparing for. <laughs> this is why we have the bunker. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and in terms of solutions, apart from things like, you know, carefully managing your hormones with the right support. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you stumble across as things that made you and, and, and your contemporaries start to feel a bit less desperate? Yeah, so one of the big things that surprised me was just being around other women of the same age. So community support um, and and finding solace in one another and companionship and this sense that you're not crazy, you're not alone, um, and, and that you can actually talk through this stuff in a real and honest way and that's that's I, the happiest I've been um, since the book came out is when I've heard that women have used the book as a tool to talk to um, their friends their sisters in these ways that are um, more honest and, and kind of more detailed than they had before and they're not kind of saying everything's fine they're saying oh did you read this book like did you relate to any of it I related to some of it and then a couple glasses of wine later and they're having these conversations that are maybe long overdue. Some of that stuff is an adjustment for us, isn't it? Because when you look, I look back and I look at things like Rotary Club, Women's Institute, Mm -hmm. all these things that we grew up feeling very, very sneery and mocking about. Mm -hmm. But in fact, maybe, maybe those bitches had a point. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's true. And that is, that's another big trend for our generation is to run away from organized religion and organized anything and to not be joiners. Like that is, was a real say anything kind of like... Um, you know, teen movie uh, staple was to be like, I'm not, I'm not part of part of your whole scheme. I'm going off on my own. But it turns out being off on your own is very lonely and, and community <laughs> is rather nice, especially at times like yes. this. Yes. And so you're talking about seeing other women in an organized fashion, whether it's a book club or a pizza club or a gin club or, a you know, yeah. screaming into the vortex. Yeah. Club. Oh, but I, I, think there's a, I think there's a point to that because I know that when I'm feeling at my most worried um uh i will try very hard to isolate Mm -hmm. so i will cancel a dinner i certainly wouldn't do anything spontaneous but maybe if there is something and the whole point of it is it sits there in your diary and it's once a month and you can go and you can be whoever you are however pathetic you feel (laughs) that is on that day it's in there and other women you know 
will understand and will see you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was what worked for, for, for me. So, um, I had a couple of author friends who I talked to a lot and we thought, you know, we should really open this up to other women cause we can get m- m- help from people who are further ahead and we can help people who are just coming up and we can share resources and just talk about journalism. Um, and we started having it and people were coming from out of state. I mean, we thought there would be 10 people and there were like 60. Um, it just, it grew really, really fast and, um, cause people needed it. And then, yeah, we just have it in our calendar once a month month it's at a cheap bar so even if you're broke you can get a beer for five bucks and and be there and and be happy and um yeah it's it was a lifesaver for me I mean we find we found out that when pre-pandemic we were able to do you know events with women then we were able to talk about the idea of absolutely fine but yeah and people would share extraordinary things, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, it was amazing, and you could feel the that once we, we once we started talking about the sort of anonymous problems, you could feel everybody kind of sitting up and becoming more because they were, there was so much identification mm-hmm. that even it wasn't their words on the on the card that it was that it was their lives being t- talked about, and and you know invariably it was exhaustion and never feeling good enough, ever feeling good enough. I mean that's the the, the 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 kind of the the, the massive malaise isn't but it what we always try to do and what you certainly do in your book because it's so witty is to frame it all in laughter so to be allowed to be serious about something without being worthy yeah yeah no I think that's I you think know, that's what we need and, and I think that that is again that's something that Gen X is very good at is this this finding of dark humor in even the worst moments <laughs> yeah, exactly. What doesn't kill, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and have a huge. No, no. What doesn't kill you gives you a bag of really unhealthy coping mechanisms. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and a very dark sense of humor. <laughs> are you so? Are, when when the madness is over, are you going to be coming to England with your book? Oh, and... I'd love to. I love. So I don't. I don't know if you noticed this um, moment in the book, but my son started a British club with his best friend Fiona. At, yes, at his um, adorable middle school. So what happens in the British club? Um, oh, what happens? They they meet every Friday in the cafeteria and they drink tea and that he brings from home and they talk in British accents and that is British Club. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. So it's not about colonialism or the Tudors. It's literally about yeah. tea and British <laughs> accents. <laughs> and they like well, yeah, they'll they'll have some kind of British snack sometimes and then they'll sometimes they'll pin up a little flag, a little British flag on the wall next to the, <laughs> their cafeteria table. Um, and it lasted until and Sophia was a little older and then when she graduated, then it. it ended um although they do have a very elaborate british club handshake then when they okay. see each other now they still do it it involves going to london so yes we will be there <laughs> we will be there the moment to we get an, an invitation how can you not come to london <laughs> listen consider this an, an open and warm oh. warmest possible invitation i hope very much that we'll see you when you come I to london so. I yes love that. And huge thanks for talking to us oh, today. Honestly, your book is, I, I, I urge everybody to read the book because it just does make you feel less alone and um, more understood and, and seen. Thank you. Yeah, that's completely right. Thanks, Ada. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. Excuse me, what level of hell is this?
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.